welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Today, we are returning to the scene of the crime and revisiting the North Korea question. There have been so many developments since the last time we discussed this topic that it's almost hard to keep track. Um, But have no fear, we're here to comb through it all, try and get you up to date, and try and discuss where this might actually be going next. So we'll be talking changes in the Trump administration's North Korea policy, uh, the possible, likely, upcoming summit between Trump and Kim Jong-un, Um, The potential for North Korean denuclearization, as the Trump administration has put it, Um, the debate over military action, and everything in between. So uh, today we're joined by our colleague Eric Gomez, who's a policy analyst in the Defense and Foreign Policy Department here at Cato. He focuses on U.S. policy in Asia, as well as nuclear and deterrence-related issues. Uh, So Eric, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. But we'll start with a different region of the world, um, and we'll start off with a question that might best be summed up as, I don't want to talk about Iran again this week. (laughs) It seems like every week we have to talk about Iran, but with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo making his big speech on the administration's Iran policy at the Heritage Foundation yesterday, um, we'd be remiss in not actually talking about this. So is this the long-awaited Iran strategy we've all been waiting on? No, I don't think so. I think this is a non-strategy speech. I think Pompeo's list of demands included uh, everything from the not going to happen to the really never, ever going to happen. And to me, it just looked like mostly security theater, trying to make people think the Trump administration is tough on Iran, but really short on anything actionable. This isn't going to encourage dialogue. It's not really a useful coercive speech. It doesn't give Iran anything obvious that they should or could do next to move into a better situation. So I I don't think there's a plan yet. Also, it it could set a worrying precedent for the North Korea negotiations coming up in terms of what the administration expects from the adversary and if they believe that, you know, our pressure is working and, you know, we can apply all this force and pressure on them to get them to change their ways, then anything less than a sort of full capitulation could look like a failure. And that doesn't leave much room for the other side to actually be flexible. There's actually a lot of similarities here, I think, in the way the administration has approached Iran and and North Korea. And it it really is this idea that by applying sort of maximum pressure, going maximalist on everything, they can achieve maximalist outcomes. But you're right, Trevor, that list that Pompeo gave yesterday was absolutely ridiculous. It was, um, you know, maybe we should call it the and a pony speech. I want everything and I also want a pony because everything that he laid out basically required Iran to pretty much give up its sovereignty, give up its foreign policy, give up its defense policy, change its government perhaps, um, all of these steps that would have to be taken before the Trump administration will even consider negotiating. And that's a, I mean, that's an ask that is never going to be achieved. Yeah. And I think the Trump administration as less than competent, I would argue, as they have been to date on foreign policy isn't stupid. They don't think that Iran's going to start looking at this as a to-do list. So what are they thinking the next step is likely to be? And, you know, I, I in a previous podcast, I suggested, you know, War might be the next thing that we are going to see in these situations where the Trump administration applies maximum pressure 
with no plan for what happens if there's no capitulation other than sort of the most obvious thing of, well, now it's time to start playing whack-a-mole. What else is there on the cards? The the two options that they offered were sanctions and I guess something that we could charitably call regime change from within. That is to say, Mike Pompeo tried very hard to convince the Iranian people to rise up against their own government and overthrow them in the hopes of improving relations with the US. Again, that's seems more of a fantasy than an actual possibility. But uh, those are the only two options they've offered. And you're right. Where do we go after that? Yeah, just not clear at all. Well, uh, okay. So we move on to our second topic of the day, which again deals with the Trump administration's negotiation ability, um, their ability to strike these deals that Trump is so known for. Um, and his tra- is basically his trade war with China, right, which seems to have taken a, a sharp turn. Um, Trump is now being criticized by members of his own party for conceding too much in negotiations. And he's tweeting about protecting Chinese companies, particularly his company ZTE that had been sanctioned by the US. So how on earth do we interpret this? I think it, you could probably interpret it as just sort of run-of-the-mill inexperience on Trump's part. Uh, it's clear that Congress wants to get much tougher on China in terms of investigating things like investment in the United States, um, mergers with companies. There, there are also structural practices of the Chinese government at home, which makes it harder for U.S. companies to do business there. And I think a lot of Congress's concerns are very warranted in terms of China sort of working against free trade and free economic interaction. Um, And then Trump sort of said, you know, all right, we're going to put the pressure on and then we're going to take the pressure off. And he sort of put the pressure on in a very haphazard and stupid way. But now he's also taking the pressure off in a very haphazard and stupid way. So um, I'm just not sure what it is he's trying to achieve here. I'm with you. And I think I'll add to the inexperience, the disdain for institutional mechanisms because the Iran deal was a mechanism. Okay. Was it perfect? No, no one said it was. But was it a starting place? I mean, take Pompeo's list of demands. Uh, I think you would have had better chance getting any of those starting from keeping the deal than erasing the deal and then starting from scratch. Similarly, with China, we have a WTO that we've sort of dragged them into. That's the mechanism for dealing with these things. We've been using it to relative success. Is it perfect? No. But it's a lot easier to get concessions from China when you do it through an agreed upon mechanism than starting these weirdo trade wars, especially when you don't know what you're doing. Or if you had a certain trans-Pacific partnership of of rules and cooperation established. (laughs) I think you're right on the institutional part, though, because Mm -hmm. actually the thing, and it's it's an esoteric point, but the thing that really gets me is ZTE, the company, was sanctioned. Um, So there are broader security concerns about, you know, Chinese hacking and uh, is their stuff trustworthy? But they were actually sanctioned because they were sanctions busting themselves. They were selling stuff to Iran, particularly to North Korea, that they weren't meant to be doing. That's why the Treasury Department put this back on them in the first place. And so at the same time as the Trump administration is touting maximal sanctions pressure on Iran, potentially putting sanctions on US allies in Europe, they're lifting them on a Chinese company um, in order to, I'm not really sure what. So well, get a Nobel Prize for North Korea and peace and stuff, right? I mean, Trump's clearly over a barrel and the Chinese know it. I mean, he picked, order the deal, my butt. He, 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 he picked a, a trade war with China at the worst possible time. And so despite having the cards, in this case, they were actually doing illegal things. Mm -hmm. We're going to lose anyway. Unbelievable. 
Well, that's a fairly harsh uh, take on this, I suppose. But finally, I, I do want to cover uh, the important news story of the week for me, at least, which is the royal wedding. Um, so this was watched by over 30 million Americans, actually, more than William and Kate's wedding. And Prince Harry actually married an American woman, an actress um, and, and humanitarian here, um, head of the Anglican Church in the US, gave a sermon. Um, so this was very much a, a mix of British and American culture. And yet at the same time, Again, the Trump administration seems to have pretty much torpedoed the special relationship between Britain and the US. So how do we see British American relations moving forward? Is there any hope? I think they're pretty I think they're pretty bad and they're gonna stay that way. Um I'm not I think that Trump is, especially with the Iran deal decision, uh, is sort of created a crisis for himself in terms of transatlantic relations, not only with the UK, but also with the rest of Europe. And I don't think there is much reason uh, for the United Kingdom or any other European country to really go along too closely with what the U.S. does. Now, I think the question is, is this a sort of a Trump thing and can it get back to normal once he's uh, either gone in two more years or six more years? Or is it something that is more that creates more structural movement on the part of Europe to actually or in, in the U.K. to actually sort of move away in a more meaningful way than just rhetoric? Yeah, really, really good point. I, I, however, want to just start with with a shout out to to William and Harry for I think doing a great job of picking wives. I mean, I you know th <laughs> we all watch the the monarchy you know fairly closely, which is bizarre given our history with the United Kingdom and all. But but I have to say I think they they both hit it out of the park. Wonderful women who are gonna uh, I think make Britain proud. Um, and the wedding was lovely. And I, I say this as an owner of a. Uh, uh, Lady Di and Prince Charles um, commemorative um, bridge card set. Uh, no from, way! Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my my grandparents were were over there during the the royal wedding, and uh, brought me back uh, the cards which I still have and cherish. Uh, anyways, uh, so I think they did a great job. Uh, kudos all around. Um, but I think Eric, you're you're right. I think um, I'm actually just to bring back the the trade war for a second here. There was a quote, and I'm going to forget the Chinese official who who said it. But he said, the U.S. does not decide for the rest of the world. And I thought, you know, this is a really good lesson that the Trump administration should sort of take in, which is we're, we like to think we get to say how everything's going to go. Maybe there were times where that was kind of true during the Cold War a little bit, at least in our zone. Um, but increasingly, especially in Asia, the, they are not. And I think what we see with the tensions between the US and various NATO allies right now is the same sort of thing in Europe, which is the US has ways it would like things to go. But guess what? It doesn't decide for everybody, not even not even Britain. And I, and I worry that that's going to be increasingly true but especially under Trump. <laughs> yeah. To go from more royal wedding to sort of balance of power politics here, I think Trump came into office at a period of time where U.S. relative position in the world is definitely um, on the downturn in Asia as China grows, you could say in Eastern Europe, given Russia, um, results in the Middle East haven't been <laughs> great for since, you know, I don't know, ever. Um, but at a time where U.S. power and ability to influence things is definitely beginning to decline and decline in obvious ways. And Trump comes in and sort of takes that like structural situation and puts on his own sort of ego and his own way of doing things, which, which I think he thinks the U.S. has a lot more ability to actually influence than we really do. Um, and so he's kind of going full steam ahead on the unilateral maximalist approaches in all these different areas around the world 
at a time when just other states are more capable to push back against it. Uh, so it's sort of like the worst strategy that you could match up with the structure of international power. Well, I, I guess we will see how this unfolds. Particularly, we will see when Trump actually makes his visit to the UK in July. Probably some big protests, perhaps a polite meeting with the Queen. It's going to be fun to watch. So, But we should move on uh, to our main topic of the day. And first, Eric, we ask all our guests a surprise question, which uh, we would like to ask you. Is there a particular book or a lecture, a class, a life experience that led you to pursue international relations as a career? Um, well, I can't really remember the time where I chose IR as a career, but I can remember two important uh, professional decisions related to particular books or courses. Uh, the first thing, what made me want to come to Cato and what made me kind of realize that I believed in a more restrained version of U.S. grand strategy and foreign policy was reading uh, John Mueller's book. Our colleague John Mueller, his book, uh, Atomic Obsession, where he talked about the dangers of nuclear terrorism and had a very detailed walkthrough of why that fear is sort of was sort of being overplayed at the time um, in U.S. strategy debates and U.S. policy debates. And it made a lot of sense to me, just the way he sort of picked apart the issue, uh, displaying sound technical knowledge and political knowledge. And it sort of was a time where I had had restraint and Cato foreign policy-like ideas for a long time, but they never really coalesced um, altogether at once. And I think reading his book kind of set me down that path. Um, and then when I found out that he uh, worked here, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, great. Um, and then the the lecture or the course that was most influential to me was a class on deterrence and nuclear strategy that I took with Jason Castillo at Texas A&M at the Bush School, um, reading Tom Schelling's Arms and Influence for the first time, uh, definitely in my field focusing on nuclear deterrence and strategy. Just, you know, it's a great way to think not only about nukes, but also foreign policy in general and the use of power. Um, and I really sort of took away a lot from that class and still try and reread Schelling when I can. Uh, so yeah, that that was, I think those two are the the two big ones. Great. Well, yeah, very, very traditional answer there yep. from Eric with very traditional <laughs> books, which does not surprise me. So we're here today to talk about North Korea, um, perhaps a little more depressing than some of the news we covered up front. Um, but I'd like to start by trying to catch up because the last time we discussed North Korea in depth on this podcast was with Joshua Pollock all the way back last September. Um, and a lot has changed since then. At that time, we were basically looking at the potential for major conflict on the Korean Peninsula. So let's start just by hitting the highlights. How have things changed in the last six months? All right. Uh, so we had the first big thing since September was an ICBM test uh, last November. Uh, that was the Hwasong-15. It was much larger and much more capable uh, than the previous ICBM model that North Korea had tested. And it kind of put to rest any kind of lingering questions of, oh, well, can they actually hold the whole US homeland at risk? That was kind of the exclamation point at the end of their year. Like, yeah, we can. Um, then there was the New Year's speech that Kim gave, where he said, basically that our nuclear forces have been complete. We said at this point last year, we would test an ICBM. We have done that. And now, you know, we can begin to sort of, he offered an olive branch to the South Koreans, especially, and said, you know, we want to, you know, not make conflict to find the relationship. Um, and then Moon Jae-in in South Korea, the president of South Korea, 
grabbed on that during the Olympics, brought, um, uh, invited North Korea to come uh, to the Olympics at sort of the last moment, and that was able to happen successfully. And there you got the start of diplomacy, where you had uh, North Korean and South Korean officials meeting, and that ultimately led to the inter-Korean summit that we saw in April, at the end of this April, and um, the groundwork for the Trump Kim summit coming up in this June. And one final thing I want to mention over the last six months was the April 20th speech that Kim Jong-un gave. This was a speech to a plenary session of the Workers' Party of Korea, a very important speech where he said that the old line called Byungjin, which involved the parallel development of North Korean nuclear forces and the economy, had been accomplished because the nuclear forces were at a sufficient state. And now the new strategic line going forward for the next five years or so is going to be economic development and technical development. Um, and I think that has some implications for how Kim will approach the summit with Donald Trump, uh, but I'll save those for later. Yeah. So I think this really gets at the question that, that you and I were discussing yesterday, Trevor, which is what are the, the North Korean um, goals here? Why are they coming to the table now? What do they expect to achieve? Um, is this about Trump's maximum pressure campaign or not? Um, I think that when it comes to maximum pressure, and this might sound like six in one hand, half dozen in the other kind of assessment, but I think that the sanctions didn't put enough pressure on Kim to get him to the table. But if he wants to accomplish this new strategic line that he laid out in, on April 20th, he's going to have to get sanctions lifted so he can do that. So the nuclear program was clearly, I think, unaffected by the sanctions. They were able to test. They were able to develop. They were able to uh, do all the things they needed to actually develop a nuclear deterrent. Um, but now that Kim is more concerned about economic development, and I think he sees that as sort of the more longer term uh, basis for security and prosperity for North Korea, he needs the sanctions lifted. And I think he can use his nuclear forces as a bargaining chip to achieve that. Yeah. I, I, so I'm, I'm still puzzled by the North Korean strategy here mm. because it seems like uh, they're going to have to give up something, mm -hmm. but I don't see them really that interested in giving up what they just worked so hard to get. So what, what, what do they, what's the path forward here? Well, again, and then this question of expectations um, and intentions, right? Mm -hmm. So why do the North Koreans have nuclear weapons in the first place? I'm fairly confident it's that they want a deterrent. I, I don't really buy this line. The Trump administration has been saying that it's because they want to conquer South Korea. So if they want a deterrent, what can they actually give up? Well, I think for the North Koreans, and there was a great piece by Joel Witt in The Atlantic uh, yesterday, May 21st, about this, where he talked about... The, the North has always been – denuclearization has sort of always been on the table. It's just always been at a price that most U.S. presidents have not been willing to pay. And the North has said that they will give up the nuclear weapons if the U.S. gives up its hostile policy, which means no sanctions, normalization of relations, uh, potentially an end to the U.S.-South Korean military alliance, a peace treaty on the peninsula, um, full recognition of the North – and that's a pretty big ask, right? That's a pretty big wish list. And I don't think any other president has been sort of willing to concede that much. And so it's, it's sort of like um, in terms of what the nukes are for, they're a means to an end, right? They're 
the point of nukes is to have survival. And one way to do that is to have a military or uh, insurance policy against military regime change by the United States. But the other way is if the North Korea can if North Korea can get all of those things, then that looks like a pretty secure regime to them. Yes, but mm-hmm. wouldn't you still be worried if you're North Korea that that having goaded people this far, mm. if you gave up your nuclear weapons, the U.S. moves away. But even if the U.S. moves away, the U.S. can still come right back in and destroy the North Korean regime overnight. Like, and if you don't have the nuclear weapons anymore, like, why'd you do all that? I mean, like, I don't know. Is that a smart move for North Korea? Right. And I, so I don't think it's a particularly smart move for them. Uh, but I think that's how. I think that's how the leadership there views the role of nukes and the role in their negotiating strategy. And it's it's also sort of open to interpretation for them, right? Because they ultimately define what the hostile policy means. And so if they continue to set just higher and higher expectations for what they demand the US to do before they denuke, then the practical effect of that is they'll keep their nuclear weapons and try to string us along over a long period of time. And there's not, and another factor in all this is that there's not a lot of trust. Um, <laughs> there's been a lot of times at past negotiations that fell apart um, for you know, various reasons that we won't get into all the details here. But uh, I think that you know, getting to a point where the two sides can actually trust one another enough to move forward in a constructive way is going to be very difficult. And I think that's what Kim wants from the summit. I think he's going into it with the expectation of using the summit to improve the relationship with the United States. Don't give up anything from him, from Kim's perspective. Don't give up too much right away. Say that we'd be willing to give up stuff for a phased approach that improves the North Korea-US relationship over time. So that way, when the relationship gets good enough, which is again, sort of murky and not clearly defined, then we can give up the nukes because things have improved. Yeah, and I'm glad you used this word denuclearization because while I, th- I think that's really interesting and you might actually be be right about Kim, denuclearization clearly seems to mean something different to the North Koreans, perhaps to the South Koreans, but certainly to the Trump administration. It's there's, it's not very clear if the Trump administration actually expects that the North Koreans are going to dismantle their nuclear weapons immediately. Uh, you know, how do we reconcile that? Um, I, this will be the key. Uh, thing that needs to happen before the two leaders actually sit down. Um, I think based off of what Trump admin officials have been saying and uh, Trump's sort of domestic position in the United States, I think he's going to ask for big gets from the North to say that give up your nukes and then you get sanctions relief. Dismantle your reactor and then you get, then you'll get the economic benefits. And I don't think the North is going to go for that. I think because then you give up you give up the insurance policy before you actually have the insurances. Um, and so you're going to have a clash between uh, expectations about what denuclearization means um, and expectations about the pace of denuclearization itself. Um, and if those things cannot be resolved, then I don't think the summit is going to be all that successful and it might fall apart. And then the U.S. is left in a pretty... Uh, it's left as the odd man out, as I wrote in a in a previous paper uh, on this, uh, where last year the U.S. had China, South Korea, everyone was kind of moving in the same direction in the region to applying economics pressure and political pressure on the North. Now, you know, you have a South Korea, North Korea dialogue that has been successful. 
somewhat successful. Um, and then you have North Korea and China trying to mend, bear, mend fences as well. And so if the U.S. backs away from the summit and continues on maximum pressure, then we're going to be the odd man out where we're pressuring while other parties want to have negotiations. And that could lead to another a whole set of other problems for the United States. It, it seems like the South Korean question actually is really interesting mm. here because a lot of these perceptions that the administration has here that the uh, that the North Koreans have are basically based on the South Korean go-between on President Moon Jae-in on um, his travel back and forth and what he says the other side says. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily that we're talking directly to the North Koreans. Um, so the, the South Koreans have been so instrumental in this. Do you think that they would be at some point basically willing to split with the U.S. position on this? Oh, that's a that's a great question. And I'm not sure if I can give a completely accurate... I'll, I'll sort of lay out the, the reasons why they could and the reasons why they won't. Um, the reasons why they might be willing to split with the U.S. is that the Moon administration... Well, one, Moon Jae-in himself is incredibly popular within South Korea. He's probably the most popular South Korean president that they've had since uh, democracy. Um, and his party is also doing pretty well politically, although not quite as popular as he is. Um, so I think he has a strong mandate to continue negotiations and continue diplomacy with the South. Um, also, when the Trump administration was making those sort of veiled nuclear war threats last year, uh, I think the the South got pretty scared about the potential of a war on their soil that the U.S. started. It's sort of, you know, usually it's the allies that kind of can entrap the larger power. Uh, I think in this situation, the situ- uh, it was reversed where the junior partner was worried about the larger partner starting the conflict. Um so that could be one reason why Moon wouldn't go along with Trump because he has the he has the domestic backing for diplomacy and he is willing to continue trying. Um, but why he? So I think actually I think that's more likely. I think that's more likely than him siding with Trump at this point. Yeah. And so one of the things though I, that I which Trump administration is South Korea going to go along or not go along with? Because I think. Just as it is difficult to understand North Korean intentions, I'm having trouble understanding the Trump administration's intentions for, for many of the reasons we sort of have discussed so far. But in particular, I'm thinking about how Trump was inquiring about pulling troops out of South Korea before the Olympics and then kind of gets smacked down. And so you have, on, you know, even as, as Pompeo-ian as North Korea's list of, of demands might seem uh, about the hostile policy stuff, they're all gravy for the U.S. In my opinion, we can say yes to all of those things with no harm done to us, and we get rid of the nuclear weapons. Fine by me. And I think Trump, the original Trump, might have been down with that. He didn't want troops there anyway, I don't think. Um, what, what does he care about Korea? That, he gets a Nobel Prize. I mean, it's all <laughs> gravy for Trump. But on the other hand, you have Bolton, and then you have this other stuff that Trump sometimes says, like, well, well it'll probably, we'll probably decimate them if they don't go along. You know, like, well, so which Trump administration are, are, is anyone dealing with? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, if strategy is one big obstacle at this summit, right, the other is clearly personnel. And you've seen all these maneuverings from particularly John Bolton, but people like Mike Pence, too, have really dabbled in this, trying to basically, um, you know, look like they're supporting the summit, but at the same time, setting a bunch of conditions up front that make it look like Trump basically can't achieve those goals. And then that sets you on a path to more conflict. Um, And in particular, I'm thinking of the Libya model comments that John Bolton made last week or the week before, um, you know, where he said basically, oh, well, we're thinking of the Libya model of 2003-04. That was misinterpreted most, uh, most impressively, perhaps, by Trump himself. 
the Libya model of 2003-2004, people don't think of denuclearization when they think of that. They think of the fact that Muammar Gaddafi died a terrible death. So it, it seems like he's really trying to undermine things. Right. And that's where the North Koreans are too. Uh, when they hear a Libya model, they think of, oh, look, this guy gave up a nuclear weapons program before it was finished and then he died for it um, several years later. And so I think when when Trump sort of misspoke, when he mischaracterized Bolton's comments, Trump was actually saying stuff that the North Koreans were like, oh, yeah, that's how we think about it anyway. Um, so I think I'm not sure if Bolton is at the point of undermining the negotiations, but it's clear that he has a preference for, uh, again, maximum pressure. Uh, he, he doesn't shy away from military regime change. Um, and, you know, if, if, the, if the summit fails, not again, the U.S. will be the odd man out diplomacy wise, but it'll also be empowered to sort of go with these more hawkish tendencies because, hey, we tried for the biggest thing we could get, right? We tried for the leader with leader summit, which in diplomacy is, you know, you're sort of going all in right at the start of, of the poker game. Um, and if it pays off, that that's great. But if it doesn't pay off, you're not really left with much other options for diplomacy at that point. Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I hate to engage in speculation, but I think the big remaining question that we have to talk about here is just what is the most likely outcome? We have this summit probably going to go ahead on or about the 12th of June. Um, but there's a bunch of outcomes that we could see, right? We could see uh, sort of an empty handshake and photo opportunity where Trump just gets to look great in front of the cameras. We could see some kind of um, sham deal, right, where there's an agreement, but it's it's not really a real deal. It doesn't actually denuclearize anything, but it looks perhaps good to people that don't know what they're talking about. We could see some kind of real deal where we get an actual concession in exchange for a concession. Um, or we could see a complete failure and possibly a move back to more confrontational politics afterwards. Mm -hmm. Did I miss anything or are there other options here? No, I, I think that covers the spectrum um, pretty well. I think that if a failure happens, it'll be because of this expectation problem I mentioned earlier and an inability to reconcile it. Um, and Trump, if Trump feels sort of like, no, you know, I'd rather have nothing than give up or do something I don't want. Um, and then you're getting into reading the personality of Trump, which I'm I'm no good at. <laughs> so that that's one way. But I also think that in terms of a a a real deal, there probably is room for keeping the North Korean testing freeze, keeping uh, dismantlement of some of their nuclear testing facilities, um, stopping ICBM uh, from stopping ICBMs from being produced at a at a big rate. Um, that could be positive steps for the United States. And I, I hope that Trump is willing to sort of get the sort of smaller but still real concessions out of the North, the North that I think that the North would be willing to make. Uh, but it's difficult. I think a lot will depend on his uh, own personality and approach to things. Uh, and I do worry about and something related to the personnel thing. I do really worry about the lack of expertise on Trump's team. There's still no ambassador to South Korea. Uh, yeah. We, <laughs> we that Actually, shocking? I believe a nominee was just announced in the oh. last 24 hours, but I'm not sure who it is. So we, we may have one soon, but even oh. still. Yeah. But, but still, all of this, they're not in place yet. So all of the summit prep is kind of happening without that person there. 
so you know, I'm I am optimistic that the summit will happen. I am not all that optimistic about the outcome of it. Yeah, I, I, my guess is somewhere between empty handshake and minimal deal that gives some kind of sanction relief for some kind of self-imposed restrictions. But I can't see. I can't, and then I think, unfortunately, that deal then erodes within a year, and then we're back to status quo ante. If I if I was a betting person, I had to bet. I think that's where I might end up. And that would be a that would be a huge shame because actually, as as an orthodox as Trump's approach has been, it it has actually paid off here. We are the North Koreans do appear to be open and willing to talking. Maybe that's more about having finished developing the nukes, like we said, than it is about Trump. But we do seem to have a window of opportunity here. It would be a real shame if it got squandered. Mm -hmm. And if Trump, uh, sort of final point on this, if Trump is willing to do this, then it might lead to some more success. But if he's willing to let the South Koreans and the North Koreans keep talking about um, a what they call the peace regime, trying to get a peace treaty, um, there, I think there is a lot of room for South Korea and North Korea to make real progress in economic cooperation, political cooperation, and reducing tensions to make conflict less and less likely. Um, ultimately, I think denuclearization discussions will rest with the United States. But if, if those things can still happen, um, then that is still a step in the right direction for the peninsula in general, even if it's not exactly what Trump wants. So hopefully Moon can stay the course um, on his side and, and that happens. In a first for the podcast, we bring you not one, but two episodes on North Korea and the nuclear summit with the United States. Shortly after recording the first part of the two-parter, Trump called off the summit, and then only days later, it looked like the summit might be back on again. And so back on again to talk about it is power problems. Joining us for part two is another of our Cato colleagues, Sahar Khan. Uh, Emma Ashford is out for a few months on maternity leave, and we are very glad to have Sahar join us. Uh, Sahar, say hi to the good people and introduce yourself. Hello, everyone. Um, my name is Sahar, as Trevor said. I'm a visiting research fellow here at the Cato Institute, and I'm delighted to be here. Um, my areas of focus are state sponsorship of militancy, civilian counterterrorism bureaucracies in South Asia, and U.S. foreign policy. Okay, great. And we still have Cato Policy Analyst Eric Gomez with us. Uh, Eric, thanks for sticking around, staying on the line, as they used to say. Um, So last week, we recorded a perfectly good episode about North Korea, and then Trump had to go call everything off. What the heck happened? Well, um, I wish I could give you a more firm answer than what I'm about to say, but um, I'll recap, you know, the the series of unfortunate events that brought us to this place. Um, so last Thursday, uh, I'm not sure the exact date, but last Thursday, Trump releases a letter saying that due to North Korean insults and, you know, the state of the dialogue between the two, that he would have to pull out the summit. Um, shortly thereafter, President Moon Jae-in of South Korea met with Kim in a very sudden and very sort of impromptu meeting to, I think, kind of figure out what the heck is going on. Um, then Moon comes out of that meeting and saying that Kim would still like to meet with Trump uh, and discuss denuclearization. So now on Tuesday, May 29th, we have uh, Kim Yong-chol coming to uh, the United States to meet with U.S. negotiators and 
try and hammer out the details and actually get a summit after all. So we went from um, me last week sort of saying, I think the summit's still going to happen. Two days later, Trump says the summit's not going to happen. Now, a few days after that, we're saying maybe it will happen again. Uh, so it's this sort of you know back and forth, will they, won't they, will they, won't they? And it is frustrating to no end <laughs> as an analyst. Uh, but hopefully, um, we are winding up on will they, uh, and nothing changes within the next 48 hours that makes this entire thing bunk. <laughs> well, the first thing that comes to mind here, Eric, is if if we're back on so quickly, why did Trump call it off? What, was was Were the insults just that grave? Yeah, they were pretty... Uh, well, for North Korea, they weren't too bad, you know, <laughs> relatively speaking, because North Korea is going to North Korea. Um, so uh, over the weekend before Memorial Day weekend... Uh, Pence said some things, Vice President Mike Pence said some things about wanting to do uh, the Libya model. The senior U.S. officials keep on br- kept on bringing up this Libya model that North Koreans really don't like. Uh, they don't like being compared to Libya and they don't like uh, what they see as the Libya model, which is you give up your nuclear weapons and then the U.S. deposes you anyway a few years later. Um, so U.S. officials kept on saying that in public statements. Um, then the North Koreans release a statement, not from Kim Jong-un himself, but from other senior officials involved in the negotiating process, calling Mike Pence an idiot and saying that, you know, if the United States uh, decides to do this, then, you know, or if the United States follows through on the Libya model, essentially that, you know, we'll meet you on the nuclear battlefield and you're not going to like what you see, um, which again is, is sort of standard, you know, North Korean talk. Uh, I didn't really see it as too much of an escalation of the rhetoric at the time. Uh, but then apparently that and also something that was revealed uh, last, late last week, which is that U.S. officials in Singapore who were trying to arrange the final logistics of a meeting uh, with their North Korean counterparts, the North Koreans apparently did not show up. And so they were stood up. Uh, they, the North Koreans just didn't show in, North, in Singapore for several days. And it appears that that uh, plus the rhetoric coming out of North Korea is the straw that broke the camel's back and got Trump to release his letter last Thursday. So it sounds a little bit like high school is what I'm hearing. A little, yeah. And then when Trump released his letter, he didn't tell the South Koreans in advance. Um, so Moon had to call an emergency meeting of his cabinet and, and security officials. Um, and then what, so what? One thing that is good, and I, I think I'm going to transition into talking about this. I know we might have been saving this for a bit later, but um, one thing that I was trying to think about last week when Trump pulled out of the summit was what happens next with South Korea, right? And specifically, does Moon Jae-in continue this diplomatic and engagement push, or does he say, you know, I have to follow the U.S. lead here? And I think we got an answer um, because shortly after Trump says and doesn't you know give moon any heads up that he's pulling out of the summit last week moon and kim meet one on one for a meeting and that is very significant because i don't think something like that has ever happened before in terms of north korean and south korean heads of state you know top leadership meeting on such short notice in a period of i wouldn't call it a crisis per se but in terms of uh great uncertainty and uh unknowns about what happens next. You had the two leaders sitting at a table face to face and talking through what comes next and trying to work out what happens. And that shows that, number one, Moon is committed to diplomacy. He is committed to engagement, even if the U.S. might not be. Um, 
which is probably good for regional peace and stability, if not necessarily uh, good uh, for U.S. influence over South Korea. Um, and number two, it shows that North and South Korean leadership can meet on such short notice and hammer things out, which is a new development in the history of the peninsula, um, which bodes well uh, for future periods of instability or future periods of uncertainty uh, if, the, if they can come together on such short notice and, and work out what's happening. Yeah. I, I, so that, that pivots us towards a, a question that I'm struggling with right now, which is that um, you know, we hear that there are diplomats working now uh, behind the scenes to kind of whatever repair, whatever bridges need repairing, but I, hopefully, you know, laying the groundwork for a successful summit. Um, I guess the next question on my mind is, ha- has anything changed because of this? And it sounds like you think maybe South Korea's, um, you know, thoughts about how to handle this may have changed. But what else? And fundamentally, you know, you made some predictions last week about what's likely to happen as a result of the summit. What's really changed? Or was it just a bunch of fireworks or has something really actually changed here? I think we've seen in the harshest light possible the differences in expectations driving both sides here, uh, driving Kim and Trump. For Kim, I think he was coming into the summit with the expectation that it would be the first step in repairing or normalizing the relationship between his country and the United States. Uh, He didn't really have the idea of denuclearization in mind that Trump did, uh, whereas Trump wanted something more sort of grander, uh, give up the nukes, like promises and concrete steps to actually do it in exchange for sanctions relief later. Um, And Th- that those sort of differences in opinions or not opinions, but differences in expectations and demands were being talked about among expert circles in the United States. But we really didn't get to see them sort of on display until last week. And I think that really underlined just how much of a gap there is between the U.S. and North Korea. And my initial reaction to Trump deciding to cancel the summit was that it wasn't the worst thing he could have done. The worst thing he could have done was have the summit with these big differences and expectations, and then the summit fails, which I think would have happened. Um, So if this is, I don't, now I also don't think that there's enough time between now and uh, June 12th, the original date, to actually resolve all of these differences. Uh, So what I hope would happen now is that now that the differences have been aired and both sides have been sort of very frank with each other about where the problems are. Now we get some hammering out, still at high levels, but you hammer out some of these details now. So that way when you do have a summit down the road, it can go more smoothly and you have more agreement than disagreement. Um, So I think now what shouldn't be the goal is scrambling to get this thing done on the original date because it's just not enough time. Um, it's just not enough time to work out the problems and have a successful summit. Uh, so I think that the delay is, a delay would be uh, advantageous at this point. So in your view, do you think that denuclearization is a feasible option? Is it practical to go after this goal? I think that denuclearization, it's it's a never say never situation because structure matters a lot. States don't just wake up and say, I'll get nukes today because why not? Um, they wake up and say, oh, no, my security situation is awful. I need this now. Um, And I think that's what drove North Korea to get nuclear weapons in the first place. 
when the Soviet Union collapsed and they lost their biggest supporter. And then later, China eventually uh, normalized their relationship with South Korea. So while you still had Chinese support for the North, they were also working to improve their relationship with the South, which is like the North's sworn enemy. So you and then the U.S. did regime change things and toppled dictatorships in the Middle East, um, which had nuclear weapons or were trying to develop nuclear weapons at one point and ultimately were defeated. So North Korea goes into the nuclear program with these sorts of things in mind. Now, if the structure of the U.S.-North Korea relationship changes, then you change the incentives for having nukes and then you might be able to disincentivize the North from possessing them at all. But this is something that sometimes structural change can happen very, very rapidly and suddenly. But I don't think that's going to be the case here. I think that any sort of change is going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of effort um, on the part of the United States and South Korea to um, change the relationship, put North Korea more at ease. North Korea is going to have to also come halfway and, and meet the United States and South Korea. But through that process, you could get to a point of denuclearization. Um, this is not something that's going to happen. If it does happen, it's not something that's going to happen in Trump's remainder time in office, even if he wins re-election in 2020. Um, I don't think this is something you would resolve without a at least a decade of, of a changing relationship. And I think that's what Kim is going into the meeting thinking. That's what he was going into the summit thinking is like his position was – if I can start to change the whole relationship between myself and the United States, then yeah, maybe he would give them up. But it's not something that he is going to just say, yes, please take my nuclear weapons, United States. I am now completely at your mercy, which is something that I think Trump was more envisioning. I, I sense that the <clears throat> North Koreans might not trust Trump very much. Uh, <laughs> that Yeah, laugh. Uh, if, if I'm the North Koreans, I mean, not only does the Libya model make me nudgy, but I think there's a much closer to hand model that's just as worrisome, if not more worrisome, and that's the Iran model, which is the Trump administration thinking that an incredible, the world's like best, most rigorous, you know, enforcement, uh, you know, deal mm -hmm. uh, to make sure Iran doesn't have nukes uh, isn't good enough for the United States. And so if you're North Korea thinking, what possible confidence building measures would the United States be willing then to go for in a deal that would be even remotely acceptable to us, the North Koreans? And if I'm North Korea, I'm having trouble making a list of what those things could possibly be other than just abject surrender. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm, you know, when, when I read in the papers that the diplomats are working behind the scenes to build, you know, enough what Trump has called agreement so we can go forward. I'm I'm trying to figure out, like, I, I can imagine what those would be just given my own preferences for how you would do things slowly, building confidence. We take some troops out. They do this. We do some more things. We end the Korean War. We do, you know, there's, there's a lot of handshaking that could go on. I don't see any evidence from the Iran situation that Trump is going for any of that. Mm. Yeah, and I think the impact of the JCPOA on North Korea has been interesting. It's been something I've been trying to ask other Korea experts about and and people who are more involved in in the peninsula itself and it's hard to gauge right because some people say that oh well Kim's situation is so far different from Iran in that he already has the weapons and he already has the missiles to put them on um, whereas Iran didn't have the weapon when the deal was signed and 
on the one hand, I, I kind of think, yeah, that's true, right? The, the situation is different enough where easily sort of one-to-one application of this doesn't work. But on the other hand, it demonstrates things that we've already seen. The JCPOA failure um, also demonstrates things that we have seen before in U.S.-North Korea behavior, where the two sides come to an agreement on something, but then North Korea cheats a little here, the U.S. cheats a little there. Like Both sides don't really follow through on what the paper says, and then things fall apart. Um, And even now, uh, we're seeing that North Korea has been uh, doing some more cyber attacks against South Korea, despite their Panmunjom declaration of late April. And, you know, that could that could create situations for things to fail. And I think the easy way out would sort of be, oh, well, this other side isn't living up to their commitment. Let's just pull out entirely. Um, and I'm not sure. I, I think Trump's personality would might lend himself to doing that, um, even if we could get an agreement out of a summit with uh, with Kim. But I hope it doesn't. <laughs> I hope that. And this is something that's I'm I'm a little bit more hopeful about because if North and South Korea can keep up this diplomacy, if they can if they can make significant progress towards what they called uh, the peace regime on the peninsula, then it creates some more wiggle room. For if you discover, if we discover they gen, yeah, them cheating or they accuse us of cheating on any sort of future thing, then we could walk it back. We don't have to just scrap it. Uh, and I think that's been the sort of Achilles heel of the United States uh, internationally for many years now is that when we don't like something, we tend to take our ball and go home. And we're kind of seeing that with Trump, him saying that you know, I'm not liking the rhetoric I'm seeing out of North Korea. I'm going to take my ball and go home on the summit. And then South Korea had to say, had to sort of jump into it and say, oh, no, you don't. And sort of talk and smooth things out and get us to the point where we're at, where, where we're at now. Yeah. I, if I'm North Korea, I'm really hoping Moon is, is your guy because it doesn't look like Trump is your guy, despite mm-hmm. the fact that he was willing to talk ish. Um, and at this point, sort of decoupling South Korea from, from the United States seems even more like a good idea, I think, if I'm if I'm North Korea, because if I can build up momentum and encourage South Korea to tell the United States to get back, um, you know, the U.S. can get involved if it wants to get involved, but you might be able to get a good way down the track towards whatever future North Korea really wants. Um, it might be easier than trying to do it with the United States. Well, and this is something where I think the U.S., the U.S. collectively, you know, the U.S. foreign policy establishment is going to have to think about what do we really want? Because I'm pretty heartened by the inter-Korean diplomacy I've seen. And I hope that Moon and Kim can keep some momentum going to smooth things out and reduce the risk of crisis and conflict. And that's a good thing. Um, That's what the U.S. says it wants. (laughs) We said we want a peaceful peninsula. But it also means that our relative influence over the situation is decreasing. And I think that the U.S. will have to come to a point where we sort of think about and say, okay, do we want a peaceful situation that we have a little less control over or do we not want to surrender that control but also with the acknowledgement that things could get more dicey? And I would hope we would pick the former option, but it's not clear to me which way we're going to go because I don't think the U.S., generally speaking, doesn't really like giving up control of things. Um, so, yeah, that'll be a interesting facet to watch going forward. So what do you think this episode tells us about Trump's foreign policymaking? Uh, well, it's definitely very different from 
I think the foreign policy making we saw in his first year in office, uh, uh, as we were talking about a bit off pod, uh, Sahara, you mentioned that he seemed to surround himself with enablers, people like the Boltons, the Pompeos, people who seem more just in line with, who just click with Trump better at a personal level. Um, so I think it's it, they're letting Trump be Trump, and that could it it offers some interesting potential for a summit were it to happen. In, in this case, you know, in the in the North Korea case, it offers some interesting possibilities for the summit um, if it happens because having two leaders like Trump and Kim in the room together could produce some outcomes that we just haven't seen before because we've never had a situation where two leaders like that were in the room together, um, which could be really good or really bad. Uh, and it also, I think it reflects this, uh, the the analysis proofing of Trump because late, you know, this time last week, I was still convinced that, okay, you know, there, the rhetoric has heated up a bit. Some things have been revealed. Uh, it's probably a good thing if the summit gets delayed, but I still think the summit's going to happen. Three days later, summit's not going to happen. Several day later, several days later now, summit looks like it's happening again. So my assessment of the situation was like right, then wrong, then right again. And it's so hard to predict. And that could make diplomacy very, very difficult um, when it comes to actually implementing any kind of agreement you have. Because if Trump is that fickle um, in the pre-negotiation, can you trust him to also follow through with his word afterwards or not? And I think that will be something weighing heavily on the minds of not only you know North and South Korea, but also any other country involved in any kind of uh, negotiation with the United States right now, China. <laughs> well, <clears throat> that sounds like a pretty good place to put an end on it. Um, well, you're still right, because by tomorrow, <laughs> who knows where we're going to be. So. Yes, post this podcast quickly. <laughs> yeah, Eric, thanks for joining us again, uh, Eric. Um, and thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld, and everyone at home listening. Find us on Twitter, uh, hashtag CatoFP to continue the conversation.